Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we're on episode 138 in the middle of summer here in July. You got your hosts today, myself, as well as Pratik and Nick as always. Before we jump right into the stories, please follow, please share the podcast. We really appreciate it trying to get the word out here. So to begin, we're going to be kicking it off with Nick. Nick, what's going on? Yeah, so to celebrate the summer, you know, some people like to go to the beach, some people like to go to the mountains, and several Republicans are starting to engage in their favorite primary pastime, which is what government agencies would they abolish if you elected them? So Republican candidate and former farmer C- pharma CEO, not a farmer, Vivek Ramaswamy, said that his plan calls for, quote, reducing the federal employee headcount by 75% by the end of his first term, with half of that gone in the first year. He went on to say that in any bureaucracy, whether that's the public sector or the private sector, 25% of the people are responsible for 90% of the effectiveness. So, hey, let's just get rid of the rest of them. So as a Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas, said in his campaign announcement that, quote, as president, he would reduce the federal workforce by only 10 percent and that you could believe him because he did it before in Arkansas when he reduced the state executive workforce by 14 percent. Now, Trump, DeSantis, Nikki Haley and others all want to make it easier to fire federal employees, albeit in different ways. And if we go back to Vivek Ramaswamy, as well as businessman Perry Johnson, who no one has heard of, us included, uh, but apparently he's running. So Vivek and Perry have both proposed cutting the entire education department as well as the FBI. Pratik and Tyler, what are your thoughts on this? And if you had to pick one for the day, which department would you cut? I mean, look, I really don't know what the Department of Interior does, but I'm sure they do a lot of interior things. So I don't know much (laughs) about him. So you eliminate that department. You always had to eliminate the department you know nothing about. That's what I'm saying. Tell me what you think, man. Which department would you eliminate? I, you know, I don't know what department I would eliminate, except we're abolishing the Fed, of course. But apart from that, so 75% of the workforce reduction, like, so coming from my libertarian perspective, on the face, it sounds decent. But here's the issue. Simply cutting jobs and not providing those jobs elsewhere is going to be catastrophic for our economy when we have millions of federal workers that rely on these incomes for a living. So I guess what would be the plan to get those people in other forms of work? He's not wrong that the top people are always going to be producing the most. But that doesn't mean everyone else shouldn't have a job. That's simply not how society should function. Even if you're not the most productive person, you should be able to participate, make a living. Um, so I would I would like to see what his plan would be for those workers. If they're simply going to be displaced for the sake of being displaced, I don't think that's a very productive plan. But if he's saying we're going to move a lot of this work into the private sector, I'd be happy to have that conversation. But that's not at least what I'm getting from what we were presented here. So I would... I would take a different approach from Tyler. I think that sometimes, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that you need to eliminate 75%. I, th- I wouldn't put a number to it. But I do think one of the biggest problems with government, and I guess this is a big problem in a lot of businesses, but especially in the government, once somebody has been in, been in that position for so long, they become complacent. And what happens is that, especially with a lot of these people that are federal employees, and you know who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the person that's like a hard worker that like puts their 110% every day. I'm talking about the person that has like been in their position for like 40 some years. And for the past 10, 15 years, we haven't really done anything to try to improve whatever they've been doing. They're just a complacent employee in the government. Those exist in all businesses. It doesn't matter if it's public, public or private. The only difference is, is that within the public sector, this these people are paid for by 
taxpayers. So that's the challenge here. And yeah, this is the problem is that we know when you're a federal employee, and this is why most people go into the federal government that do, there is a higher, there's a lower probability that you will ever be fired from your job because you're a federal employee. That's one of those reasons why it's a big perk. Like, you know, you always get your benefits, you always be in the government, you may not see many pay raises, but you're not going to be axed that, you know, unless something really bad happens. Like, so the challenge with all that stuff is that in, on face value, it sounds good. And again, this is one of those things. It's like Democrats talking about banning guns every like four years. Republicans always talk about abolishing the government. But whenever the Republicans are in office, it's not like the federal government has become any smaller. If anything, they've become bigger. Republicans, including Donald Trump, have talked about in the past that they were really anti-EPA and an anti-environmental protection agency. Well, Environmental Protection Agency is still there, and it has more employees than it had before Donald Trump went in office. Now it has even more employees under Biden. That's just an example, because Republicans really hate the EPA. But my point is that all these organizations are always going to become bigger. They never become smaller. This is just a talking point to make all these random libertarian people feel special again. But like in reality, the federal government will always get bigger. There's always going to be more and more recruits that are going to be included in the government because the people that are currently in the government, especially some of these people that basically have been there forever that haven't been effective in the past like 10, 15 years, they're not going away anytime soon. So then they have to add more people into the mix to make sure that the system is more effective than it was you know, previously. So it's like you're adding a lot to the stuff, but you're not doing anything to try to make it more effective. In the private sector, if somebody is like that, sure, they do. sometimes they do last for a little bit, especially when it deals with private educators and things like that, especially that kind of workforce, where it's like, you know, once you've been in there for like a few years, and then you're, you're basically unfireable at some point, especially when you deal with professors from private universities and stuff. But at the same time, if you are really bad at your job, then you will be removed in the private sector. In the public sector, if you are really bad at your job, ain't nobody going to remove you if you've been in office for so many years. So my point is, is that that's a challenge. And I'm not saying that what these people are saying is right or wrong. I'm just saying that it's very hypocritical. Because if Rivek Ramaswamy becomes president, if Donald Trump becomes president, if I like even even if any any of these presidents, even if Ron Paul decided to come back from his grave and run for president, all his literally entire like life's work was to you know reduce the federal government size and just to abolish different agencies of the government. Even then, no agencies of the government will ever be de uh, demolished. And the government will become bigger after the beginning and the end of his presidency. So, like, my point is that this stuff's always going to happen. It's never going to change. And I'll let Nick give his statement because I feel like I've been going. What statement, Pratik? What statement do you want me to give? Tell me I'm wrong, man. <laughs> Tell me you're stupid. All right, well, I'm not going to say you're stupid, but you are wrong about the EPA. When Trump came into okay. office, there was a bunch of people that either were forced into early retirement, quit, or generally just left the EPA. There was um, a decent amount of funding cuts that were proposed, and the Trump administration overall devalued it. And if you look at the political appointees he put into office, I mean, a lot of them were total morons. They didn't know much about the agency's mission. All they did was they came in and they said, oh, look, you know, we think this agency is bad, and we're basically just going to cut things where we think we can. So, like, the EPA itself wasn't doing too hot after Trump came in. So if you're a fan of that, then Trump, you know, you would like Trump. But like you're saying, now that Biden's in, he's staffing it up uh, a bit more. And so it seems like at the end of Trump's you know, tenure, 
that nothing has really changed. But to be fair, in the beginning, it did. Um, as far as other federal agencies, I don't know. There's like this agency that does capital planning for uh, Washington, D.C. and the surrounding area, just for like where the federal government sits. Um, and that agency is like 40 people. So, I mean, we could cut that. <laughs> I think, you know, it wouldn't make a big dent. But it's at 75%, though. You know, I <laughs> mean, hey, <laughs> that would be a pretty big thing. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think it really depends on what type of agency you're talking about. Like, for example, if you were to do that to every, every federal agency, like, obviously that wouldn't make sense. Like, right now, for example, you know, if you look at the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, there's a lot of air traffic controllers. That's the majority of that organization. Do you just say, hey, you know, we're going to cut 75% of this org. So some airports, you're just not going to have air traffic controllers, but others, you're going to be just fine. So it's like, how do you spread that out? And, you know, I, again, it's something that I think sounds really good. And I think one of the issues, though, is that if you're trying to sort of limit the size of the federal government, if you cut all those positions, you also have to reduce the agency's funding. So it's, I think that's where the issue is, where when Republicans get into office, like Trump, you'll see that the federal budget doesn't go down. And if anything, they end up borrowing more, because even though they're cutting certain expenditures now, they end up borrowing more to cover some of the costs. And then also, I don't know, one of the things I think is a big issue with federal waste is when they send a lot of money to contracting agencies. And so these contractors end up billing out, you know, three to four times what a federal employee would make to do the same job. And you end up, weirdly enough, having this transfer where, sure, you have a ballooning federal government, but so many of those funds end up going to these private companies that have these long-term contracts with federal agencies. And so, weirdly enough, like, it ends up going to the private sector anyway, but it only goes to select people in the private sector, and those are, more often than not, these white-collar consultants. And, and to be fair, there are other types of workers who the federal government does contract things out to. But, you know, by and large... You know, that's that ends up being a decent chunk of what you spend money on is these outside contractors, because you say, oh, you can't fire. You can't hire any more federal employees. You got to contract it all out. And it you know, I, I could definitely see it creating a perverse cycle. But, you know, that's that's far away from the point. I mean, Tyler, you mentioned that you would like to see the federal government kind of reduced in size. I think that's something that a lot of people I mean, look. I think you could find waste anywhere. Yeah, I can, I, I, I can even come out and say it's very idealistic. It's never going to happen. That's a dream. Maybe I had ten years ago, but I've long since given up on it. I mean, not we've you guys have been saying it, but neither the Republican Party or Democrats really care to actually spend less. It's not really their prerogative. I mean, the Republicans will say that they want to cut welfare programs, but notice they don't say that about pretty much anything else. They're only raising the, 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 the spending in every other regard, so it doesn't actually change. I, I think what's going on here is he's going for shock value. He's trying to get a news headline. And I think Republicans that do see the waste of the government, like Pratik was saying, we're all aware that you could be very complacent in the government. They're not actually built for productivity like a private business is. It's actually a fundamentally different model. And because of that, if I'm a Republican and I see that headline, I'm like, this guy is going to finally stand up, take charge. He's going to reduce the waste. My taxpayer money isn't going to be going to all this crap but at the end of the day it's simply not going to happen maybe it gets him a few more votes but like i said i just think he was being a little outrageous to get headlines and look we're talking about it first story of the day so i guess it worked out and i just wanted to say one more thing is one of the issues with federal funding right now is it's use it or lose it so if you're in the military mm -hmm. if you're at a big federal agency if you if congress gives you a hundred dollars and you only spend ninety dollars next year they'll say oh look you only needed ninety dollars 
Therefore, that's all we're going to give you next year. So there's an incentive to spend that extra ten dollars yeah. and totally waste it, even if you didn't need to spend it. And in you know, business, waste that would is, be profit. Right. Right. Exactly. In a business, it would be profitability, or you would just say, "Oh, look, we don't need this department anymore because we're not doing this work. Let's get rid of them." But you can't mm-hmm. really do that in the federal government. So, which is why you have to be careful about when you're adding new agencies, because you always have to worry about that bloat. When you are increasing the funding, you have to recognize it. It probably isn't going to go down, or if it is going to go down, it's going to take a significant change that's likely not to occur. Absolutely. One thing I'll I'll add to this is just because we talked about Vivek Ramaswamy, and he's the one that talked about this more. Vivek. Um, since since Vivek Ramaswamy has been in the news, he's basically like solidified his place as number three. He's eliminating, he's like reducing the percentages of other people. So now, before Vivek Ramaswamy was in like, you know, two or 3%, now he's at 5%. So what that's done is it helped make, it basically made all these other percentages go down too. So like Mike Pence is at four now, Tim Scott's at four, and Nikki Haley's at three. This was according to a Fox News poll that was done recently. Um, but yeah, like the point is, is that Vivek Ramaswamy is trying to come up in the news. And what I find fascinating about Vivek Ramaswamy is we talk about Democrats trying to be diverse. There's two Indian candidates in the Republican GOP primary cycle that make up the top six candidates, both Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. And Tim, and Tim Scott's African-American. That's th- as half of the people that are running right now are minorities. And if you wanted to be you know, technical, Ron DeSantis is Italian. So... And being being young is a minority in politics nowadays. He's less than half the age of both Biden and Trump. He's 37 years old. So I think that in and of itself does provide, you know, an opportunity. If people are looking for someone that's not as experienced, as they say, I think he might be a good pick on the Republican side. I don't think anything that he said is really that obnoxious because we've had people that have ran for president on the Republican side, including people like Rick Perry in the past, Ron Paul. You've had a lot of candidates in the past that have talked about eliminating agencies upon agencies. Rick Perry so couldn't like, even name it on the run. debate stage. They oh, were like, what yeah. are the three you want to get rid of? And he couldn't even say it. <laughs> that was but, so good. But you know my point is like, they've been, there's been a lot of candidates like that in the past. Like Ron Paul became famous because Ron Paul literally wanted to eliminate government. And that guy ran for so many years and the whole entire Libertarian Party is literally based off of that one person. There's no other, like, I can't really date back to any actual, like, one politician creating an entire party, apart from Abraham Lincoln creating the Republican Party or Andrew Jackson at the time creating the Democratic Party and then that stuff basically transferring to FDR being the new Democratic Party because he was in office literally until he died. But, like, those people, like, there are certain people that literally make the parties. Ron Paul, for all it's worth, even if he never won any he never actually won for president he was always like a top three top four candidate for like four the four three or four times that he actually ran for president and out of all that like what ron paul was literally famous for literally being abolished for literally being the guy that was the face of abolish the government movement so that was before the tea party and all that stuff became a thing like ron paul was that face of that movement so i will say like it is a movement that isn't necessarily a dying movement i just don't think it's a winning movement i just think it's a movement that gets people you know in the news yeah well i've talked about it before it's very idealistic if we're in a two-party system it's never going to win out and good luck congregating the voting base that whose whole ideology has to do with not bothering them 
It's like, stay away from me. Give me my liberties. Don't touch me. And it's hard to get those people to be engaged as much as you'd want them to be to be successful in the political system. We need a new bull moose party. And, you know, before we go on to the economy <laughs> for the next story, I just want to say, Pratik, you said uh, Vivek Ramaswamy hasn't said anything too out there. There was that time, I think this is about a month ago, maybe two months ago, when he said, oh, no one should be able to vote until the time they turn 25. Otherwise, like if you're a firefighter or something, sure, you can vote. But otherwise, if you're just the average Joe, whatever, no votes for you. You're nothing. You're a second class citizen. It's not so ridiculous when you think he's a Republican. And when you think of younger voters, they're typically on the Democrat side. So that might play into Republican talking points where they actually might benefit from that. Also, every every old person... Doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat. All believe that young people are stupid. I know, that's but like that's a, what's that's so like funny. Consensus it's like thing. he's the young guy, though, right? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's the young guy yeah. in the race, and he's saying young people are stupid and don't appreciate well, he this was, country. He used to be dumb. It's like that's what 25. Trump should be saying. That's what the but old see, people Nick, should be saying. Nick, well, thirteen see, years ago, he was an idiot. Now, he's yeah, brilliant. he was a dumbo back then. Now <laughs> he, he has transformed himself to make himself better again. So, if it were twenty-one, I wouldn't be so upset, though. Speaking of making things better, let's talk about the economy. Nick, lead us into it. Well, I wouldn't really call it making things better, but sure thing, Pratik. So uh, the name of the story is, it's the economy, stupid. So Congress is about to return from a two-week vacation to argue about how much money we should spend. If the House and Senate don't agree by September 30th, we may have another government shutdown. Meanwhile, U.S. employers added 200,000 jobs in June, according to BLS. And that sounds great, right? But not so fast. Interest rates are high, pandemic cash has run out, and people have worked through their savings. And as a result, some analysts at Bloomberg estimate that the nation's six largest banks, J.P. Morgan, Chase, um, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, uh, Morgan Stanley, are predicted to have written off a collective $5 billion tied to people defaulting on their loans in the second quarter of this year. Almost a billion of that is estimated to be from credit card debt. In other news... The Federal Reserve's top regulatory official wants to increase capital requirements for the nation's largest banks in the wake of the recent bank failures, basically saying you need to have more money on on hand in case another bank run happens. A bit ominous. We'll see what happens. So Pratik and Tyler, what are your thoughts on the latest numbers here? And do you think Republicans and Democrats are actually going to agree on how we should spend our money when it comes to things like Ukraine and other hot topics? So I'm going to start here. So I've been in the past. I used to work in bank policy. So there's a lot of different theories out here, especially dealing with like, you know, what what to do whenever you're in a recession, how to handle the banks. And back then in 2011, 2010, 2011, whenever Dodd-Frank got passed, that was like one of the most signature legislations with banks because the Dodd-Frank and Wall Street Protection Act basically created the policy that that increased the amount of capital requirements that all the banks would have. And it basically made it so that whenever you go get a loan, it's a little bit more tougher because you have to have some, you know, you have to meet a certain criteria that was all laid out by Dodd-Frank. It made it more tougher for lower income families to get the loans because they had to meet like all these barriers and thresholds just so the the banks weren't like predatorizing and providing, you know, predatory loans to people because they basically linked that to what led to the 2008 financial crisis. And this was ironically a democratic thing. So back then, like, you know, this this may have been the most conservative legislation ever put to date. 
Because what it did was it made it so that if anybody, any Tom, Dick, and Harry wanted to go get a loan, they basically have to be of a certain income threshold. They have to have some form of credit history. They have to make, you know, certain, you know, they have to have be making a certain amount of money. They have to be able to make a certain deposit into the bank. They have, they have there's a lot more thresholds and processes in place for somebody to just go willy-nilly get a loan. And that while that while that stuff is done, is it just made it so that regular basic people need to have you know meet a certain threshold before they can go get a loan because the banks are much more conservative giving out loans. Now, ironically, the irony about it is that the Republicans, because Dodd Frank was passed by Democrats, really hate Dodd Frank. But then the Republican version of Dodd Frank is literally identical. So the problem with Dodd-Frank is that Dodd-Frank was what has basically, you know, transformed the entire banking industry because before people that were lower income were able to easily get a loan, at least easier than they can now. But now it's a big challenge, especially if you're going to, you know, want if you want to buy a house, if you want to buy a car, if you want to build a business, whatever you want to do, there's much more challenges there. So like, I just wanted to, uh, you know, sum that up. But this is the situation that we always get into is that whenever there is any financial recessions, it's the same way as Federal Reserve likes to raise the interest rates to try to balance out the economy because they feel inflation is on the rise. And especially right now, it's all weird because inflation usually goes on the rise when the economy is pretty stable and doing well. But in this situation, the economy isn't stable, the economy isn't doing that well, but inflation is going up, and to curtail that inflation, interest rates are also going up, which that leads to a weird situation where with inflation going up and interest rates going up to curtail the inflation, you're actually making the economy worse off in the long term until you're able to actually stabilize and start reducing interest rates to try to balance things out. So it's weird. It's a weird situation. I don't really know the answer to it. But the problem is, is that that's the situation with the economy where until like whoever the Federal Reserve chair is right now, it's Powell. But until you have somebody that comes in and is like, all right, we need to start reducing the interest rate like every quarter gradually. And then you start balancing it out with the inflation situation. Until you do that, the economy is going to become worse and worse. And obviously, Republicans are going to blame the Democrats and the Republicans are going to blame Biden. And it's going to be a win for the Republicans because this is the Biden economy and it hasn't been well. But at the same time, you know, from a macroeconomical perspective, this is a challenge that will always persist. And the, when the thing that's going to make it even worse is if the Federal Reserve decide to increase the capital requirements to add to everything. If like, you know, if you have really high interest rates, people can't get loans because the interest rates are really high and the cost of doing business has gone up because of the high interest rates and high inflation levels, then it's going to become even worse when you start increasing the capital requirements on all those banks, especially the nation's largest banks that tend to provide more loans to higher value, you know, higher level investments, because then what that does is it curtails the amount of investments and the amount of businesses that people decide to go further and do, which overall is worse off for the economy. So I just wanted to explain that, um, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts? Just wanted to give you guys an overview because just to this clarify, is something that I used to work in. Are capital requirements the same thing as reserve requirements? Is that, yes. are we talking about the same yes, thing? Yes. So during COVID, thing. didn't they get rid of of reserve requirements they didn't get rid of reserve requirements or if they didn't they just significantly near, reduce no it. no they didn't have they didn't do anything really with the reserve requirements as much as they had near zero interest rates so in, in 2020 they reduced the reserve requirement ratios on all net transaction accounts to zero percent 
Oh, eliminating well, reserve mind. requirements for all depository institutions. So that was a major change during COVID to keep the banks up. But, you know, I, I don't want to dive too much into that now. Yeah, all yeah, I'll yeah. say is um, in terms of like long term outlook, I think in terms of politics, the most important thing is how the economy is going to look leading up to the election. So we're actually looking out maybe more than a year here to see if the economy at that point would be doing good. And I, from what I've seen, based on certain forecasts, they're anticipating recession to the end of this year, partway through next year. But by the end of next year, there's a good chance that things start to turn around. And if that is the case, that could actually be somewhat of a boon for Biden. Because that is the biggest point, I think, at least someone like Trump and Republicans altogether have against Biden. It's look, the economy pretty much hasn't been doing well since he took office. We had COVID. Maybe there was a, an increase in uh, uh, GDP, but there wasn't a significant increase in productivity or anything like that during uh, Biden's reign. And Republicans are always seen as the guys that are more pro-business. They're going to be doing better for the economy overall. So for me, it's that longer term outlook that is more important. But Pratik, I know you, you did provide a lot of good color there uh, in terms of like banking policy. Nick, do you have any more thoughts on this? Yeah. So a weird thing that happened is that Trump, the inflation rate under Trump was higher on average than under Obama's second term. And then Biden comes in, it shoots up, and now it's down at around 4% for a CPI, for core CPI. So it's just the back basket of goods that you consider for, you know, most people would consider for inflation from the consumer side, from the demand side. Um, so it being at 4% last summer, it was 9%. And I, I remember feeling that pretty hard. Like gas was super expensive. Food was super expensive. Like everything else was getting more and more expensive. And so inflation is still going up but it's at a much lower rate than it was a year ago. And so I think for the Biden administration, you know, they can kind of show that graph and say, oh, look, we're, we're doing okay. But, you know, usually it's around like two, two and a half, eh, somewhere around there, right? Right now it's at 4%. So well, clearly we're not doing well. But, you know, compared to nine last, <laughs> like the CPI percent change of nine in the index last summer, like 4% is not as bad, but it's still bad, right? So... You know, but compared to Trump, you know, Trump's was regular. I get I'm, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I'm guessing it was around that two percent so, average number. One thing I'll add, and this is just, you know, so because I have, I have some knowledge about this. I might not be smart on a lot of other things, but I've learned about this enough because I used to be stupid about this whole conversation. So one thing I will say, especially when it deals with inflation, is that whenever inflation is really high, especially usually when inflation gets higher, it usually happens gradually. And what happens when inflation gets higher is it's usually seen as a boost to the economy. Because that means the economy is performing really well, things are happening, there's more money in the system, there's more cash coming into the system. So that means that, you know, we're, we're, our economy is becoming more smooth and we're, we're like, you know, we're basically bouncing in the economy. High levels of consumer confidence. What happened here is, is like the inflation situation didn't go the way that inflation usually goes because the pandemic. So the inflation narrative is different. Usually it's like whenever Trump took office in 2016, there was actually high levels of economic growth that took place from 2016 to 2019. Some people contribute that to some of the inflation challenges that we face today, but a lot of it has to deal with some of the pandemic issues that took place as well, because whenever the pandemic happened, you actually saw a lot less people working. And when you saw a lot less people working and you saw a lot of people working from home and you cut down a lot of jobs that were not that were not necessary, one major challenge that you got is you basically took people out of the payroll. Then the another challenge that happens with all that stuff too is whenever all these people whenever you started to need more people to come back, like the challenge was is that there's people that didn't want to work. They didn't want to work for how much that they were going to get paid, so they all demanded higher wages. So basically, 
in the Biden economy, what you did see is like minimum wage basically went up. It didn't go up because it went up because, you know, it went up gradually or went up because of some system. It went up because you couldn't find people. So you're paying people like buttloads of more money than you were paying people before. So it's like you went from like back in our time, at least in terms of my knowledge in Greensboro, sure, minimum wage is seven twenty five, but we are paying people close to nine, ten dollars an hour. Then those $9, $10 an hour basically became close to $15, $14, $15, $16 an hour. So now you've gone up that much more. But the problem is, is the economy isn't that much stronger than it was whenever the before the pandemic. It's like you're in that situation where the economy is still struggling. It's getting to that point where it was before the pandemic happened, but it's not absolutely there yet. So that's been some of the challenges with inflation. That's the inflation narrative. But the problem with it is that in, if the if actually Powell didn't do much with the interest rates, if Powell didn't do that much in terms of raising the interest rate, I argue, and I don't know if this is a fact because it's all going to be based on perspective, but I would argue that what would have happened is that the in, inflation situation may have balanced out a little bit on its own. But then what happens to cause further problems is when interest rates go up, that actually hurts a lot of these operating businesses because many of these businesses operate on loans that are floating. Not all these businesses have fixed loans. So sure, with all the people getting paid more money, now if you have to pay more money on in, in terms of what you're paying because of your loan from the bank, that's going to cause you to have more problems so it doesn't necessarily help anything. It just makes it so you as a business have to rethink your entire business process because now you have to worry about people getting paid like, you know, five, six dollars more along with that and being like that being the minimum along with you having to pay like so much money more money in interest every year because your loan payments have gone up substantially because the interest rates have been jacked up so that's my thought process here i don't really think that like it has anything to do with the republican or democratic party necessarily i do think that you know maybe we shouldn't have given out so much money but at the same time like whenever democrats are in power they like to talk about people need to get paid more and that being falling into this storyline a little bit but overall it's just i i actually blame powell for a lot of the situations that we do have today so it's not like it's not with any specific thing. I just think that inflation's the inflation narrative is not like a usual inflation narrative. It's a different, a little bit different. I agree, it's different. I, but I, I sort of disagree. You're, you're saying if, if they didn't actually change the interest rates, things would have balanced out better over time. I think what happened was they said that the inter, that um, the inflation was transitory. So I actually felt like they waited too long. It was too much of a shock to the system because they had waited That's far too long. They had should have seen that they dumped 40% more money into the, the world. So inflation was going to go up and they thought, oh, of course, it'll blow over. And that never happened and because that to me, that was their big mistake. It's like you can't allow runaway inflation. If we're going to accept that the Fed should do their job, it's to prevent a situation where we have runaway inflation. But their timing was off. And because of that, we're all suffering from that. I think the Fed is taking into account that it it is damaging to a lot of these businesses, the fact that the loans are going up and it's just harder to operate as a business today. But they understand it's necessary for the long term you know, health of the economy overall, which is what I think they would argue. Uh, about yeah, that and, and again, I don't really know the answer to this question situation. I'm just giving my Neither thoughts. And then maybe, maybe <laughs> like I would argue that maybe if they did start raising the interest rates earlier and by gradual, gradual percentages, maybe by now it wouldn't have been such a problem. But the thing is that they actually started to raise inflation in like big chunks. 
And what that does is it That's did fair. cause some of these problems. So again, I don't know. But now, because we don't know anything about this as much as more than we already know, let's, it's time for no time for mansion dancing. Tyler, tell us about mansion. Well, as you said, there is no time for mansion dancing. So we got Democrats are coming together to stop a potential third-party presidential bid, and they're bringing the fight to Capitol Hill. On July 27th, officials from Move On and Third Way will brief Senate Democratic chiefs of staff about the risks involved, particularly if Senator Joe Manchin decides to run for president instead of seeking re-election. The goal is to educate Democrats about the potential harm a third-party bid funded by No Label could pose to President Joe Biden. There's no unified understanding among Democrats that this move would hurt Biden and jeopardize their chances of winning an election. The stakes are high, and Democrats are determined to prevent a spoiler candidate from tipping the scales. This is something that we knew was going to happen. I know Pratik has alluded to this before, the fact that the Democrats, they're like, oh, we got Biden. No one else run, even if it's healthy for the Democratic Party. No one else get in here. If anyone shines the light on what's actually going on with Biden, they might actually challenge him and split the votes. So what are your thoughts, guys? Do you think it's a smart move by the Democrats? Do you think it's a stupid move? Do you think it's productive for their party? What are your thoughts? See, I always have my theory, right? I've talked about this theory countless times on this show. I actually think that Joe Biden is one of the best candidates in the Democratic Party has, even if he's old as crap, because his policy ideas. He is the most moderate candidate that has been running out of all your usual options. When you compare him to Kamala Harris, when you compare him to Pete Buttigieg even, when you compare him to actual progressives, like, you know, I wouldn't say Beto O'Rourke is a progressive, but he's kind of leaning in there. And then like Elizabeth Warren, AOC, Bernie Sanders, your actual genuine candidates that you have, apart from Hillary Clinton, who's probably as moderate, if not a little bit more moderate than Joe Biden. Like these people are all like, there, the challenge, the benefit that Joe Biden has is now he's an incumbent, but at the same time, he's seen as a very moderate person. Donald Trump is not a very moderate person. Donald Trump, even though he's more moderate in policies, he's a little bit more hostile when it comes to his rhetoric. With Joe Biden, he's the most boring candidate that they can have on stage. That's his benefit. He's like my favorite candidate, Jeb Bush, that ever ran. Now, when you compare that to this situation, Joe Manchin is very similar to Joe Biden. They're not very that different. Like Joe Manchin is a little bit more to the right of Joe Biden. He's a little bit less moderate than Joe Biden. He's leaning more to, I guess more moderate than Joe Biden. Sorry, he's leaning more to center right. But he's seen as somebody that has held his ground. Everybody knows who Joe Manchin is. He's not like some random person that's running. Like every single Democrat and every single Republican knows who Joe Manchin is. If they're at all involved in politics in any way. And my theory about Joe Manchin is that if you throw him in this race, it's going to be very similar to what happened whenever Bill Clinton had his election with George Bush Sr. Because I think that Ross Perot and Joe Manchin have a lot of similarities. Sure, Ross Perot was, a little, was an economic person and all this other stuff. But Joe Manchin is that voice that is actually a third party voice that stands out. There's not many people that are like, if you are a Republican, sure, you don't really like Joe Manchin because he's a Democrat, but you're like, man, Joe Manchin is like a little bit more normal, is a lot more normal than all the other Democrats. 
if you're on the republic if you're on the democratic side you're like man joe manchin's not is like why is he even a democrat he votes for the republicans sometimes but then he's generally siding with the democrats on like 80 or 90 percent of the bills but on extreme issues and things that you know the progressives want to take a stand on manchin is always against so i think for somebody like manchin i think it's actually a boost that we do have a good third-party candidate. But I do think what could potentially happen from you having a third-party candidate with the caliber of Joe Manchin is you might see a Republican like Donald Trump actually pull it off. And I just think that that's a potential chance that can happen if Joe Manchin runs. That's the question mark. Nick, Tyler, got any more thoughts on Manchin dancing? No, I mean, you. I think you did an excellent job covering that. I pretty much agree. The only question I would pose is, do you think someone from West Virginia could cover those Democratic strongholds in the east and the west of the country, in the California, the New York area? Because that's where a lot of those votes, the, 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 the electoral college votes are actually coming from. So in my opinion, I don't know if he actually stands a chance to really make that big of it a dent, but it certainly would hurt Biden if he actually does choose to run. Um, we, we could talk about the health of the political system. Of course, it's great to have as many candidates as possible. But if you're looking at this as I need to win, the Democrats need to win. And look, that's how it's often, you know, put into perspective, then you don't want this guy running. And maybe you concede something. Maybe you offer him something. Say, hey, you get this position um, if you don't run or something. That, that's how I see this playing out. Nick? Yeah, I think, you know, from either candidate or either party, you know, sadly, it looks like we're going to end up with Biden and Trump. And I don't think anyone's excited about that, except for like the most hardcore supporters. Honestly, I don't even think Joe Biden supporters like I would vote for Joe Biden. I'm not excited about it. I think maybe the hardcore Trump supporters would be excited um, for whatever LARPing fantasy they have. But, you know, that aside, I think, (laughs) you know, I look, it's kind of sad, right? Like the majority of the country, there have been tons of polls out of this, Harvard, Harris, plenty of others, where they go state to state and they sort of ask, do you think the country's on the right track or the wrong track? Majority of people say the wrong track. Democrats seem to say, you know, actually, it's almost 50%. There was a December poll. You mentioned in this story that there's this organization called nolabels.org, which is basically trying to run a third-party candidate as or threatening to as an insurance policy. If, you know, the Democrats and Republicans don't do soul searching and come up with other candidates. Um, but one thing they actually ended up funding one of those polls back in December. So seven months ago, six months ago, it's been a while. But basically, it, it only seems like a slim majority of Democrats. So like 50 percent of them think that the country's on the right track. And, you know, I that's not good. That's not good. Like the majority you look at they have a little map on their website, by the way. And uh, Wyoming is hilarious because Wyoming's just like this this black dot on the map where everything else is like shaded an, a lighter color or like maybe a medium <laughs> yellow. And Wyoming is just like misery. Like no one's happy with how things are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> things have to change. So, hey, maybe someone from Wyoming should enter the race and really turn the country around. I, I have to say, like, I get that all these candidates come from states that are very populated, right? They have a lot of people. It makes sense that they would run more candidates. It's a proportion. But I think we need a candidate from like, Ar- actually not Arkansas. Oh my God, I almost said that. Let's Asa not have Hutchinson. anyone. I mean, Bill Clinton, Asa Hutchinson. No, um, let's not do Arkansas. Uh, why don't we have like South Dakota, North Dakota? I've never heard of anyone coming from North Dakota and like promising to shake things up. That's what this country needs, okay? You know, both sides seem to fetishize this like old American West of like, you're just self-sufficient. You provide for yourself. That's what it's all about. 
And, you know, North Dakota, I feel like that's one of the only places where that still is a thing. It's like you look around you, there's more animals than people. There's no one out there, okay? You've got some random oil pipelines running so by your house. We should merge let me, the let me, let me add to the North Dakota thing. Their candidate, their governor, Doug Burgum, is running for the Republican Party. Is he seriously, Pratik? <laughs> Just wanted to add that. All right, well, I guess I have to vote for him then. I got to commit to it. Yeah. I got to switch my affiliation. There's like, there's like literally like seven, there's almost like 15, 14, 15 candidates already running in the Republican Party. Like, it's crazy that Democrats literally only have three. And then out of those three, there's literally only Joe Biden. That's a credible candidate. All the other two are kind of pointless. Well, you, no, 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 no. You can't say that. You cannot say that because RFK has done so well in the polls. Well, obviously, because who else is the options? But if you, you, but you said like, there's no other option. He yeah. is, se- seemed to Democrats, he seems to be the other I, option. Right I, now. I will say that he, he is the other option. But he's the other option because nobody else is running against That's Joe true. Biden. That's if there true. were actually real candidates that ran, that were real people, I really don't think Democrats are going to be all excited to vote for an anti-vaxxer. I mean, come on. This is their party. Like, two, like Dude, you know, in the anti-vaxxers originally were Democrats. That's true. In the early 2000s, but, all the anti-vaxxers were Democrats. But still, Democrats position themselves. They fa- they literally put on the face that they're the part of vac- they're the party of vaccines. It's a bipartisan and issue Republicans now. Republicans are all these you know whack uh, yes, job people that are anti-vaxxers. So now when you deal with that, like I just think like with Joe Manchin. I mean, when we go back to the Joe Manchin story, like some of these places. You would see some sway here and there. Like, I, I mean, look, it, oh, oh, like if it was me, I have to think about who I'm going to vote for. Like, sure, I'm probably most likely to vote for the Republicans. But, like, in the end of the day, Joe Manchin would get you thinking. Joe Manchin will get a lot of people thinking. Like, it would probably even get Nick thinking. No, I he mean, wouldn't. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> he wouldn't get me thinking. thinking. I wouldn't think about Joe Manchin at all. Would you? Would you? Dude, how do you have you someone were, critique? You would never I'd be able to justify it. someone running for a party that has consistently derailed that party over the past couple of years and has become a pariah on a national stage outside of their own that's, state. You would never be able to justify fair. that. That that's fair. And not only that, West Virginia. Moderate? What is West Virginia worth? Okay, I know I just went on that's my whole crusade about oh, we need problem. people from smaller states to get involved because that would be good for America. But you know what? Honestly, like North Dakota. If I was just, <laughs> if I was just in the political apparatus, if I was just a Republican, just a yeah. Democrat, and if I was in the party, you need a governor or someone involved mm-hmm. in a larger state that's going to get you more points in the electoral college. Someone winning North Dakota doesn't matter for anything. Well. I wouldn't say that either. So with West Virginia, I do think that there, again, we don't really know the exact parameters, but I do think that there is some like, you know, put like whatever it's called, like it pushes over. It's like a crowd out effect. There are certain states that do matter a lot in these elections. I'll give you an example. Some state like Illinois. Illinois has 20 electoral votes. Or no, sorry. Yeah, Illinois has 20 electoral votes. Apart from Chicago, Illinois is not really very Republican. But Illinois always becomes a democratic state because Chicago is such a big stronghold in Illinois. Then you have other states like that. Because you have to remember all these big cities, they all vote Democrat. But a lot of the rural areas all vote Republican for the most part. So now you have certain states like that that could matter. I don't even know if it would just mean Biden wins, Biden loses. But chances would be a little bit higher. But I will say like with Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, West Virginia, Tennessee, Virginia, maybe even North Carolina, Tennessee, that block does matter. 
And I do think that there's enough voices in our country that don't want Joe Biden and don't want Donald Trump. And with with um, Joe Manchin, for all it's worth, he is generally seen as a moderate candidate. If we had a moderate party in the United States, Joe Manchin may be the face of that party. Now, the reason I say that is because Joe Manchin, for time and time again, he's always been seen as that person that will vote for the republic will vote for the democratic party and may switch his vote to vote in support of the republicans when it's an issue that joe manchin feels strongly about and he feels that it's too extreme on one end right so i do think that joe manchin matters now i will say i agree usually with nick on this this is my theory right why the hell are you a republican whenever you don't vote with the republican on countless things when in the end of the day like if you didn't have the republican party tagged to your name you would never be elected into the party same with the democrats you could be as like anti-democrat as you want if you are a member of the democratic party but then if you end up being someone like um what is her name the oh uh what is the name for, of the person from Arizona that switched? Kristen Cinema. Yeah. You, if you could be someone like Kristen Cinema and turn independent, that sounds great. But you wouldn't have been able to turn independent if you weren't originally a Democrat that ran for the Democratic Party. So I will say no, it's just that's Bernie. a blow that's on Joe Manchin. But I the think true Bernie the Sanders. Original. But see, when I see Bernie Sanders is the same exact situation as Joe Manchin. But he's if not. Bernie Sanders ran as a because Joe, Bernie Sanders has never been a Democrat. He's an independent candidate, but he always caucuses with the Democrats. If Bernie Sanders was in this race today, he'd be number two. He'd be right behind Biden. And now the challenge with that is that, well, Bernie Sanders, he's a third party candidate. Technically, he's never really uh, you know, aligned himself with the Democrat, but he's up in line and ready to get the vote for the Democrats because he knows he can't win as an independent candidate. So he's basically mooching off the Democrats. I, I, I do guess, think but Joe Pratik, Manchin is a similar Pratik, but To be fair, situation. that's not how Bernie thinks. Bernie thinks that if it's, he has said yeah. this multiple times for many, many years, but it's that it's he not will not run Bernie against thinks. a Democrat purely because he doesn't want to split the vote and give the win to the Republicans. He doesn't want... But which is not, why... Which is why the far left, I think he actually killed the far left wing of the Democrat Party the second he dropped out to Hillary Clinton. Because if he had been a spoiler in that election, he might have had a chance in the next one. But, but see, that's I think, just my thought. I think I know we're dragging it all, but but I still think that... He is still a shill, in, even though he's an independent. In the end, that's all I'm saying. like if Bernie... I, I, do you know the DNC will never elect Bernie Sanders to be Because he's not a Democrat. Because he's yeah. not a Democrat. That's, and that's then, my but point. But he aligns with... With, with Joe Manchin... In a minimum, at least the guy aligns with the Democrats. 90% of what he votes on generally is with the Democrats, except those, you know, issues that he feels strongly about where he supports the Republicans and he's like a dino. But my point is, is that with Joe Manchin, like a rhino dino, you know what I mean? But, you know, like, so in the end of the day, I think that's the thing that, you know, separates them. And speaking of moderate candidates that don't really fix, fit the mix, let's talk about Chris Christie, who before, like in the past, was seen as a rhino Republican. But then he joined forces with Trump. And then he was seen as part of the Trump crowd. So with MAGA. So now with them separate, let's talk about Chris Christie. So, you know, lead us on to Chris Christie. That's you, Pratik. You lead us on to Chris Christie. Oh. Well, my bad. Former New Jersey Introducing governor. myself. <laughs> hey, of course. The artist formerly known as Pratik. is going to have his art of this. So former New Jersey governor and Republican presidential hopeful Chris Christie expressed doubts about the Hunter Biden investigation. 
calling it either a fabrication or incompetence. He criticized U.S. Attorney David Weiss, questioning the prolonged process, accused Democrats of hypocrisy on gun laws, and called for action to address these concerns in the Department of Justice. Pulling away from the ranks, also Chris Christie continually supports FBI Director Christopher Wray and remains one of the few candidates not calling for his removal. So just wanted to talk about Chris Christie. Obviously, Chris Christie is one of those candidates that has like 2 to 3% of the vote. Obviously, with Chris Christie, when you put him on a debate stage, he's going to outshine half of the candidates that are in the debate stage. But Chris Christie himself has a lot of baggage. He's the Bur Bridgegate scandal man. So, you know, I wanted to talk about what his what your thoughts are on about what he said about the Hunter investigation and his thoughts to support Christopher Ray. So, Tyler and Nick, what are your thoughts? It's an easy layup to say this, like to go after the Hunter Biden investigation, whether or not it's true, whether or not it was prolonged. I mean, like, I think it probably was. I think there was probably some sway or influence on the inside that delayed things. They, they don't want to incriminate the president's son too much. It's not a good look for everyone. But at the same time, if you're Chris Christie, this is just... This is just free brownie points, if you will. So I get why he did it. But I don't think this matters that much in the end of the day. Who dropped the cocaine bag, Tyler? That's what I want to know. It's been a week. Yes. No justice. Um, but yeah, for Chris Christie, look, he has two objectives in this race, I think. Because uh, let's be real, he's not going to win. Number one, take out Trump. If, it, if that's what he wants to do, get it's it like done. like a kamikaze pilot? Is he's going to kneecap on? him. Okay. And then number yeah. two... Chris Christie needs to unify the rest of the Republicans in some way. And in doing that, in trying to accomplish that, you need to go after Joe Biden. You need to make this about Joe Biden being a bad president. You have to say Hunter Biden is case in point of Joe Biden being corrupt. And that Hunter, you know, he's trying to protect Hunter for all this stuff because ultimately it leads back to him and it incriminates him, right? That's what you would have to say. You'd have to say Joe Biden not only is a bad president and he's bad for the economy, but he's been doing shady business deals and he needs to be brought to justice. I don't think Chris Christie would actually say that, but he could definitely say that as a former prosecutor for the state. I think he was the state AG for, for New Jersey. Yeah, he was. Um, I think he yep. could say like that he's prosecuted people who were corrupt before and he could go after the Biden family. I don't think he would really end up saying that. Um, but at the same time, he could say it. And again, I think those are the two things. One, take out Trump. Two, just bring the Republican Party together because I think above all, you know, Chris Christie does seem like he just wants the Republicans to win. And so, sure, I, I just said take out Trump, but he needs to bring the party together. And unfortunately, you know, that's the weird um, line that all the candidates are going to have to toe where if the Biden you know, administration is seen as very anti-Trump and going after the man as an individual, all the other Republican candidates have to say, no, that's totally wrong. We need to come together as a party and support our own people, right? But the problem with doing that is that then you throw all your support behind Trump and he just wins by fiat. So, you know, you're in a tough spot. And then he loses yeah. the general election. <laughs> you're in a tough spot um, if you're, you're trying to run for things. But yeah, Tyler, any closing thoughts? Pratik, you as well? Pratik? So I don't have much thoughts on this. I just think that, you know, Chris Christie needs to start pushing up his game too a little bit. It's kind of sad that like none of these candidates really have any flavor or fair, uh, you know, flair to actually try to beat Trump. And I think that it's about high time that they start, you know, coming in the scenes and trying to make themselves stand out. I do think that, I mean, Chris Christie and Ron DeSantis, for all it's worth, are pretty decent candidates. I don't think that they're bad candidates per se. I just think that they need to start upping their game to try to stand out. Chris Christie and Ron DeSantis have opposite problems. Ron DeSantis actually has a lot of opinions. He has a lot of thoughts, especially when you talk to him. Like there was a Mar Mar Maria Bartiromo, like you know, Sunday, like you know, morning 
you know her interview on Fox News where she was just talking to him and he he has a lot of opinions about a lot of different things he has ideas on how he's going to improve stuff but the challenge with him is that he tries to refrain from saying Trump's name as much as he can and he refrains from insulting Trump now when it comes to Chris Christie he has the exact opposite problem Chris Christie has a lot of ideas he has a lot of opinions he has a lot of thoughts on a lot of different things but the, his primary focus 90% of the time is just attacking Trump and showing why Trump is not su suited to be president and how, you know, we shouldn't elect Trump instead of focusing on what he would do if he became president. So it's like two opposite issues. I think Ron DeSantis obviously has more flair because he's Ron DeSantis. He's the most popular governor probably in the country. Whether or not you like him or hate him, everybody in this country knows who Ron DeSantis is. The only other people that I would say are as popular, if not more popular than Ron DeSantis, may even be like Gavin Newsom, if Gavin Newsom was to run from the Democratic side. But I think that, you know, when it deals with um, Ron DeSantis, I just think that he needs to step up his game by, you know, pointing out how Donald Trump sucks for, his, sucks for president. Like, he has to point out, like, why he's so much better than Donald Trump, how he's different from Donald Trump, how he's going to attract the MAGA voters to come to him over go to Donald Trump. He's the new face, the new blood. How is he going to retain them? I think that's his challenge. Chris Christie has the opposite challenge. That's where I'd sum it up. I just think that they both have their issues. And until both of these people start figuring out what to do. And again, I really think that all these 17 candidates that we have, like every single, every everyone's mom, dad, and sister wants to become president. All these people need to drop out. So Ron <laughs> we haven't even had the first debate critique. Let them have their debate. I know, but okay. the more and more, the yes. more and more coverage somebody yeah. gets, the better it is for them. That's fair. The reason Donald Trump became president in the 2016 presidential election is literally Donald Trump yeah. threw his name in the race and they quit talking about every other candidate that ran you're right because and it was all about he Donald dominated Trump. the news coverage but that's what's so funny about ron DeSantis, because in that same interview that he mentioned he said that you know he's not getting attention because of the media that they're trying to shape this they're they're against him in some way and it's like no they just care more about trump you can't out trump trump on this issue and i think for that reason <laughs> Go ahead, Tyler. I mean, so Pratik, you were attacking Chris Christie for only criticizing Trump, but I think that's his only pathway to success in this election. I don't think that is true. there is any message or anything Chris Christie can say in terms of like a political messaging for his campaign that would help him more than simply going after Trump, knowing what he knows about Trump. He was friends with Trump. He knew him personally. I think he, he'll be able to take real digs at him. I think the volume needs to increase. I need to see Chris Christie's name in the news every week, maybe even being a bit outlandish, attacking Trump on literally every single thing he says until he's too noisy to ignore. The second Trump responds to Chris Christie, he's won. And I don't think he's gotten that response yet because he hasn't been outrageous enough. And Chris Christie's like, campaign, like, hire Tyler, because that just made a lot of sense to yeah. me. Yeah. Like, like if, if we're talking about, like, proper political discourse, I mean, no, it's not good. But at the end of the day, when, if you want to get votes in today's day and age, you That's have to too. be out there. You have to be outlandish. We're talking about news coverage. DeSantis is like, no one's covering me. It's like, be exciting. They want to be shown that this guy's a I vision I that he say can people. attack, that he could be a bulldog. I wouldn't say people. What, animals? I would say the Republican Party. <laughs> I would say the Republican Party voters. Okay. Democratic Party voters are very different. They like your boring people. There's a reason oh why Joe Biden God. won out of 26 candidates. <laughs> they like be, the yeah. most boring and bland people. Unless they throw Bernie Sanders in the mix. Wait, and RFK, Marion Williamson? Excited. If they get any, anything in the polls, I mean, they're kind of both. Well, I, they're going to get something because like 
30, 40% of the country that are Democrats don't want Biden. I mean, he has 60% of the vote. They're, they had to split it with the other two people because they don't have any other options. You know the real sadness in all this? The fact that Andrew Yang and his forward party are nowhere to be seen. Right, like, when's the last time you heard about Andrew Yang? He tried to make a big, like, he is ran for mayor of New York, and he's not running right now, but he was like, oh, okay. I'm going to, not left, not right, forward. That's what we're going to do. He was going to make a new third Yang party. Gang. The Yang Gang. Yang and Gang. where are they? Nowhere. But let's move he's like on. A, we're talking about Ross Perot. He's kind of like, he's very articulate. He knows what he's talking about, but that's not going to help you in winning this sort of election. But with that... Let's move on. We got Treasury Chair meets the Chinese. So Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen concluded her visit to Beijing, expressing that Washington is willing to listen to Chinese concerns about security-related restrictions on U.S. tech exports and make it, uh, consider addressing unintended consequences. While no major agreements were reached, Yellen emphasized the importance of communication between the U.S. and China. The strained U.S.-China relations, including disputes over technology, environment, and trade, contribute to the economic uncertainty today. So we have Yellen reassuring Chinese officials that U.S. does not seek to decouple from its economy uh, with China, but rather aims to address national security concerns and diversify supply chains. I mean, that's a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. At the end of the day, we're having a lot of tensions between the U.S. and China. Uh, as the U.S., we want to make sure that the dollar stays on top. We want to make sure we always have an edge over China. But at the same time, we can't be too antagonistic towards them because they are one of our biggest trading partners, probably the biggest trading partner we have, at least at this point. So what are your guys' thoughts on this this trip for Yellen? There's no winning, dude. I think if Biden talks to the Chinese or if the administration does, it's seen as weakness. And if he doesn't talk to the Chinese, it's seen as incompetence. And so either way, they're going to be painted in a bad light by Republicans. I do think that it's a good idea for us to be more engaged with China. You know, after the whole Blinken thing, after Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, and there was all this tension around that, you know, obviously with the spy balloon, that's what I was talking about with Blinken, where that wasn't any good. So many Americans, like I remember us on the podcast that week when the uh, spy balloon was discovered, and the, the whole series of them, like it was like, oh, let's hate on China here. Why are they doing that? That's not right. Um, and so I think it would be a good thing for the world, frankly, if the US and China got along better. But let's be real. We're both trying to outcompete each other in the same parts of the world, and naturally there's going to be tensions and it's going to lead to conflict. Now, whether that conflict turns violent, that's an option. It doesn't have to right now. And so that's what we're trying to avoid. Um, and so if you listen to all like the military pundits and, and all that stuff, you know, going back five, ten years, everyone says like, oh, in five years there will be a war in the South China Sea. It's inevitable. It's going to happen any any week now. And it hasn't happened. So, you know, maybe whoever whoever the president is that inherits that you know good luck to them they're gonna lose their term but you know <laughs> i it's a tricky spot to be in and i think no matter what you'll even yeah. see like josh hawley and all those other people who try to farm clips and clicks online where you know they were saying oh janet yellen bowing to her chinese counterpart was a sign of weakness and meanwhile it's just like the polite thing to do culturally so i i don't know you know, it's that's how you do diplomacy, by the way. You understand their culture. You're briefed on their culture and you abide by it. And that's kind of yeah. <laughs> that's just part of the discourse. So it's ridiculous to say that. But anyways, let's let's move on here um, to Ukraine or for our last major story today. So cluster bomb delivery to Ukraine. President Joe Biden defended the decision to provide cluster munitions to Ukraine, citing the country's need for ammunition to counter Russian aggression. 
The move was met with mixed reactions from Congress and concerns from the United Nations, which called for immediate halt to the use of such munitions. The Biden administration assured that the provided munitions would have a reduced dud rate to minimize civilian harm. The decision was made after consultations with allies who acknowledged the necessity of the move. The aim is to bolster Ukrainian offensive, uh, offensive capabilities and maintain its position against Russian forces. So, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts on the munition cluster bombs that have have been delivered to Ukraine, which are actually one of the most dangerous weapons that have been sent and are actually like, um, you know, are seen as very controversial to send because of the impact that it will have to civilian populations over time. What are your thoughts? Just to clarify, are these actual rounds or are They're they bombs? Bombs. 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 Okay. Cluster yeah. Bombs. So from, from what I understand, you know, just reading the news generally, I've heard that the Ukraine seems to be running out of both ammunitions, I guess, and bombs, so this makes sense. We've already invested so much money into this war. It's not like we're just going to stop now, especially when the Ukrainians have only been, you know, showing signs of success even as of late. Um, so this is an obvious move to me. I understand. Maybe it's controversial, but at this point, I think the U.S. is do it, willing to do pretty much anything to win apart from actually sending troops over to Ukraine. Yeah. The, what about well, you, the main I, concern with cluster bombs is if, you know, it's going to cause casualties that are unintended they're not as precise like as the name implies cluster it is a cluster of bombs and so you're not just striking one area you're striking a larger area okay and the concern here is that it's going to kill civilians but i would ask what civilians like is ukraine going to take these cluster bombs and bomb moscow no are they going to bomb russian soldiers that are occupying ukraine right now yeah what, what civilians are they going to kill? The tricky part, of course, comes in in the territories that ended up seceding from Ukraine, which you could call it a sham election. It mostly was. Um, but the territories that seceded in the eastern part of the country, um, for those territories, if Ukraine were to go on this counteroffensive and gain more ground and then start, start to lay siege to these actual cities and areas that they try to retake, not just lost ground in the middle of some forest, but actual cities... That's the main concern, is if they bomb these cities, they could kill civilians, and that wouldn't be a good thing. But I think as far as, like, just the, the idea of it, Russia is already using cluster bombs. And I know, like, two rights don't make a... or two wrongs don't make a right. But at the same time, if a country is invading you and using cluster bombs to bomb you, and then now you're not allowed to use cluster bombs to defend yourself, like, that sounds silly. That's that's their argument all the time, dude. So it's about morals, right? If somebody is like, you know, doing all kinds of negative stuff to you, if you do the same stuff to them, then you're immoral. But the other person's already engaging in those immoral acts. So like, you know, it's one of those that is not really a right answer. But I will say that that whenever there's any war, this is always a problem. No matter what you do, you're always going to put the lives of uh, regular citizens in danger. It's not like that's never not going to be the case. You, we throw millions of bombs on countries. We have in the past. There, there's been drone strikes that we've had. When I say bombs, I mean drone bombs. There's, that stuff has always taken place. And there's always people that will die, that will be, you know, you know, will fall into the same scope of fire within that bomb. It is not necessarily the case that we're trying to bomb all these people. We're usually trying to bomb the specific target in those drone strikes. But other people do get harmed. And many of these people are civilians. Now, if you wanted to start a rampage of becoming anti-war, that sounds great. 
But in the process, like that doesn't help any of the situation because Ukraine is still going to get bombed by Russia. So it's one of those that, yeah, we can talk about all these high moral grounds and things sound really exciting. But in the end, like, you know, when you're fighting a war, these are things that happen. Sure, we can debate about, you know, the ethics of war and what when you should do stuff, when you should do stuff and when you shouldn't do stuff. But if, as y'all said, like whenever one country is bombing the other country with cluster bombs, if this country is too morally outright to be like, oh man, we shouldn't use cluster bombs, that's wrong. Well, they're stupid because they're going to be cluster bombed too. So like- One of the concerns though, I will say is that some of them may not explode. And so if they're just sitting there as duds, they could go off in the future. And so one of the arguments against using cluster bombs is that if you care about these civilian populations- then, you know, even after the conflict is over, all the soldiers are gone, you'll have some random person who ends up interacting with this bomb that hasn't exploded. It'll finally blow up and kill them. And it's the same thing with all the uh, landmines that used to be used in major conflicts. And, you know, you know, uh, you'll still hear of people dying from landmines. And it's crazy to hear. But yeah, it's a real concern. Yeah. Yep. So very sad there. Um, Closing out the show, though do have a bit of a lighter story. So we have Trump makes UFC great again. So for those of you who don't know, I'm actually a pretty big mixed martial arts fan, fan of UFC. This past weekend, we had UFC 290. It was in Las Vegas. It was an amazing fight card. Probably one of the best I've ever seen, but just a major event overall. And about right before the main card of the event, Trump actually had a walkout. So Dana White was next to him. He owns the UFC. He's a friend of Donald Trump's. He actually on TV, right before the pay-per-view, walked out, was shaking hands with people and the crowd exploded for Trump. Um, we we're talking about a bit about before the show about how this might be Trump's audience because of that he was seeing this kind of recognition um, but I will say during the event after fighters maybe got a knockout or something they were all going over to Trump whether they were American or not even an Australian like everyone was doing it going to Trump shaking his hand giving him praise uh, which is kind of interesting and it reminded me personally of like I don't know a Roman emperor in the Colosseum getting praise from his the, from the blood sport that took uh, forth before him so I decided it was kind of an interesting note a lot of people publicity from this there were a lot of eyeballs on this event and people watching were probably leaning towards being trump supporters anyway but things like this in my opinion is what makes trump so popular he's willing to be out there uh, in these big entertain uh, entertainment events like the ufc or whatever else putting himself out there he becomes the show even when it's not about him which really is powerful when you're trying to run for election again so as much as i've dissed him in this campaign i don't think he's really going to win the election he did seem to get a lot of praise from this so do you guys have any thoughts or comments on this event well one thing i will say which is interesting just because this is in general trump is starting to beat biden in the polls general election polls recently echelon insights for example this is the most recent i think that was just between them two that wasn't uh it was more of a generic poll that wasn't like focused on this particular state or you know like you know region that saw joe biden losing to donald trump And it was not like, I mean, obviously it was still close, but it was a 43 to 42%, that sort of thing. But in the end of the day, Trump was beating Biden. And I do think that that is important to note. And I think one thing about Trump is like, whether you like him or don't like him, the question is not about whether he wins in the general, because general is like long, long time away. The question is whether he wins the GOP primary. 
And if he wins the GOP primary, it's going to be because Trump is notorious. Trump is always in the news. Trump is showing up. People are talking about Trump and whether or not people like him or hate him. Even if he has a terrible scandal, let's say Donald Trump is like, you know, accused of murdering someone. He's still going to be in the news and his popularity is still going to go up and especially in the GOP primary cycle because he's Donald Trump. And the more and more you talk about Donald Trump, the more and more you poke at Donald Trump, the more and more you criticize Donald Trump, Trump goes up. And that's my issue is with all these candidates that run, everybody's in their race like, oh man, we're better than Donald Trump. When the debate starts, if Donald Trump doesn't show up, the entire conversation is going to be about Donald Trump. And that's what I think is the best thing about Donald Trump is Donald Trump always stands out. And the more and more you don't talk about Donald Trump, the better chances it is for all these other randos. But the fact is that when Donald Trump is in the race, he is the spotlight of the conversation. And even on the Democratic side, when the Democratic primary debates happen, the main conversation point is not going to be about how miserable Joe Biden's presidency was for the four years that he was there. It's going to be about who's the best candidate that can take on and beat Trump. And what's the viewership going to be like? About half of what the Republicans are like if Trump You know what's funny, Pratik, by the way? Yep. Um, if you look at 538 for the most recent polls, Trump very slimly has uh, a higher unfavorability rate than Joe Biden. So people like him and favorability rates, you know, they, they, they ebb and flow and whatever. But both of them have been pretty consistent where like only 40% of the population <laughs> actually likes them. And for a president, like... That's pretty bad <laughs> when you're like a presidential hopeful yeah, and like four in 10 people actually are, are, tolerate you. And then like, yeah, it's just it's just not good. So I would love if someone else came on. But like you're saying, these two end up being the stronger candidates, you know, sadly. And, and yeah, and you know I think what? It we, actually the disapproval rate falls into that. I will say and this is my theory about this, this is always my theory. The people that are always excited the people that are thrilled about these candidates are the people that vote in these primaries. And you have to remember that the approval ratings, the majority of the people that probably voted on the side that they approve of the president or disapprove, and especially if it's their party, those are the people that are your diehard supporters. And those are the people that vote right. in the primaries. The people that are maybe in the disapproval side, they may never vote in any election. They may not even be, even be important. They're going to be those moderate general voters. And I've argued this before that I do think Biden has an edge over Trump when it deals with general voters because, you know, Trump is seen as less moderate than Biden, even though they're both moderates. But Trump is seen as a little bit more of a hostile figure than Biden is because Biden is a very boring guy. The dude can't literally walk and talk and chew gum at the same time. And he'd probably mess up speaking about anything because that's what Joe Biden does. But I do think that's the benefit. Guys, I, I have the answer. We throw them all in an octagon and have them duke it out. And the last one standing becomes president. And that's the Zuck Zuckerberg and Musk story. So tell us a little bit before we close oh, it God. out. Just because right. it's pretty funny. I'm just going to mention it. Um, Elon Musk is on Twitter just being an absolute troll. So you, you probably know Zuckerberg just created Threads um, as part of his platform. It's basically a Twitter competitor. They got 100 million um, followers or users in the past week, which is incredible. Elon Musk is a little salty. So he tweeted out, Zuck is a cuck. I propose a literal dick measuring contest. These are some of the richest people in the world. They also would like to fight in the Coliseum, funnily enough. So we might see that. Uh, just a bit of levity to the end of the show. Any thoughts? I hope guys? Elon doesn't run. And this is just a... 
And I would have called this the fight between Meta and, um, I guess, Tesla. And what, what would you say is Musk's bigger company? Is it Tesla or it Twitter? Would, it would be Meta I still and Twitter. Think it's Tesla. What, would, what would Facebook fight with Tesla for? Like, they're totally different products, Fritzy. Like, that what? is true. <laughs> Whatever. They're both lizards. Anyway, that's the show. We got Politicano 138. Thank you all for tuning in. Please share the podcast. We really appreciate it. And with that, we'll catch you next week. Later.